Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, call it a very modern love triangle. You, me, and your smartphone. It is the very topic that British author and journalist Paula Kokotza tackles in her new book called Speak to Me. And she joins me to talk about the novel and what inspired it. And relationship expert Alison Jones joins me to talk about how too much focus on your phone can impact any kind of relationship, but especially a romantic one, and what you can do to change it. Bruce Kidd is a former Canadian Olympian and longtime sports policy expert. He also watches a lot of sports on Canadian TV. So he's turned his attention to the surge in gambling ads that he's been seeing of late and joins me to explain why it bothers him so much and why he's now part of a group pushing for the ads to be phased out in this country. But first, the smoke is starting to clear in BC's southern interior, giving us a much clearer picture of what's been lost and what's been saved from those massive wildfires. We meet one woman who's lost her home to talk about what comes next. Another looking to thank one firefighter who used a garden hose to save her home. And we hear from volunteers helping people out in their time of need. in BC because it's been quite the day. There's been a lot of news out of the Southern Interior today. The smoke is beginning to clear, of course, and it's bringing both some encouraging news and a better idea of what's been lost as those massive wildfires continue to burn. The province's Minister of Emergency Management, Bowen Moss, spoke after touring some of the areas hit by the wildfires alongside Premier David Eby and another minister. Uh, Moss says the fire situation has improved enough to allow visitors to return to the area and the order restricting travel to many of those communities in the southern interior due to the wildfires will lift tonight at midnight. So that's good news for businesses and all those in the Kelowna area. Non-essential travel to West Kelowna is still off and people are asked to stay away from Lake Country and Shoe Swap as well. Earlier today, West Kelowna's fire chief also said that after a specialized search of all those affected areas, he's not aware of any fatalities related to the wildfires. And that's really good news. Um, He also updated the number of buildings that have been lost or partially destroyed in the flames. I expect the number of partial and full losses to be less than 90, less than 70 in the city of West Kelowna and less than 20 on WFN territory. I hope that provides the public with some of the scope and scale of what we're dealing with. But for each of those homes, of course, there's an individual story about a family looking how to rebuild, but how to rebuild, what to do in the short term. One of those families is that of Heather McKay's, and she joins me now. Heather, thank you so much. No problem. This must be, I mean, I think all of us are thinking of those who, who've suffered a loss like you have here. I mean, thankfully, no one uh, seems to have been injured or, or, or killed here, but really, um, really tough for the families trying to rebuild. I can only imagine now that the smoke is beginning to clear and the, and the scale of what you have to do is becoming, uh, becoming more evident. Yeah, it's when I drove home today, um, I have to drive through, I don't drive through our neighborhood, but I can see the neighborhood and the smoke's starting to clear. So I should be able to see very soon how destructive it was. Yeah, I, I, like so many people, I don't think a lot of us understood, but I, I've spoken to others now who were evacuated. So many people watched their homes through their security cameras and that's what you did yeah. too, right? Yeah, so we um, have been having some mice or rats or something in a cupboard. So we put up a wise cam in that cupboard just to watch. We called it our mouse cam. And 
um, on Friday evening, I noticed I had gotten notifications at like 4.32 to 4.37. And when I looked at them, it was just the cupboard filled with smoke and the smoke detector going and uh, popping and crackling and banging in the background. And so we knew then that our home was probably gone. Well, I know you've moved around a bit. You were in Alberta originally. You moved to West Kelowna. Yeah. That was supposed to be sort of what we call your forever home, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been, I, I, you know, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine being in your shoes. Yeah, it's it's been rough. It really, it's, Kelowna is a beautiful place to live, but it is challenging with the, the market. Um, and so our, you know, two of our adult children were still living with us. And, and so we've, you know, it's changed the dynamic of, of of how we live like they're having to move out on their own because we won't be able to get something for all of us for quite a while yeah i noticed you were looking you've sort of put out word that you're looking for a place to rent you're planning to stay right what 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 do you see in the short term or what are you going to be able to do in the short term um it's a hard decision i think what we're planning on is maybe getting like a maybe a seasonal there's a lot of vacation homes here that rent out in the winter and so then we wouldn't need furniture um so that's an option um but it, it's i can't it changes by the hour I, i'm really having trouble making those decisions right now yeah i know that you run a business too in cologne is that right yeah yeah i have a little hair salon so it, it must be, I mean, it feels like things are maybe getting back to normal a little bit, and, and that must be at least somewhat encouraging for you and the family. Um, it's pretty slow for me um, because people are apprehensive to leave their children at home to go get their hair done. But I right. I want to be at work. I need to keep busy or I'll start to fester. Um, and so, so I went back to work today because I, I wanted to. People are very understanding and nobody would expect that of me, but... I wanted to get back there. So it is the apocalypse feeling that we felt all weekend is starting to subside with the smoke clearing a little bit. It doesn't feel quite so scary out there. Right. Are you getting the kind of support? I mean, what kind of support are you getting and is it enough? Um, uh, We have gotten so much, you know, well wishes and, you know, people are, have been really wonderful. Even today, I just, I stopped in at to see how much it would cost to get my eyeglasses replaced that I'd got in May. And the lovely owner was there and she burst into tears when I told her what had happened. And so I didn't even have to pay for my eyeglasses. Like people have been really wonderful and very generous. People don't know what to do. So they tend to like buy you a treat or, (laughs) um, and so people have been wonderful and we've gotten so much um, love from everybody we've we're quite overwhelmed by it yeah that's really good to hear you know i mean i i I, you can tell if it's hard from the outside but you can tell the community's really rallied around those who've Mm -hmm. lost so much yeah yeah and we feel we're you know we've been so blessed because we we do have some content insurance and you know it wasn't our our own home that we purchased whereas our neighbors you know they've got to start from scratch and so it's really really uh, we are really lucky, and there's a lot of people out there that have nothing and no family, and so we've been really lucky. So I just hope everybody else is getting as much love as we are. Yeah. What are your plans for for for? Are you, you're going to stay, I guess. I mean, you have a business there. Yeah. Your plans are to stay in West Kelowna. It is home, yeah. right? Yeah, we're hoping. Like, it, it's possible we'll have to end up moving into Kelowna, which isn't the end of the world. It's just we just like the little small time 
downtown vibe of West Kelowna. So we really want to stay in the area. Um, and so we'll just see because there's probably 100 people that lost their homes on the weekend. And so we're all going to be scrambling, trying to find places to live in a market that was already oversaturated. Right. What about supports from, from sort of official support? Is, has that been enough? Have you, where have you been staying for, for the time? Uh, we, we're really lucky that my husband has some family here. So we didn't even ask okay. if we could come. We just showed up at their door at nine o'clock on Thursday night. It just happened so fast. Um, and so we've been staying there temporarily, um, but we will need to find something right away. Um, and we have not gotten a lot of support from officials yet, but we have registered and it should be a few days till, and then they'll, we'll start getting some. There are some restaurants that are offering things. I think one of Moxie's tonight was having a free meal and games for any people who were evacuated. So there are things out there. I've just been too drained and tired to go to anything. Yeah. Yeah, anything, uh, I mean, I guess when you look at what's been lost, uh, the good news is that, that there, it wasn't more serious, but in your case, I guess there's just so much to rebuild. You probably need to give yourself a bit of time just to kind yeah. of take a deep I, breath and I figure it out. I actually talked to my sister today. Um, today's been really hard, and I think the shock has worn off and the grief is in, you know, because we can replace our sofa. We can replace those things, but it's those little memories you have, you know, the little ornaments your kids make for you when they're in elementary. And, you know, the, you know, the, I had the stuffed animal from a friend when I was eight years old that passed away that I've always kept with me my whole life. And so it's those kind of little things that you can never replace that we mourn for. Yeah, that would be the really tough part, just those mementos. I mean, I guess all all objects are replaceable, but some things, mm-hmm. memories aren't, right? Yeah, I was very grateful. In our family, we each basically left with a bag um, with some clothes in it like and the shoes on our feet. But at the last minute when my husband was coming to meet me, I wasn't able to get home to pack a bag. So he just met me at a gas station so we could go on to shelter somewhere and he grabbed my grandfather's teacup for me. And that's the only possession we have from our home that isn't a piece of clothing is that teacup. And I'm very, very grateful for that. Well, Heather, it's, it's heartbreaking to, to hear. And, and I hope for you and your family, I know that, uh, that you know, it must be so tough to, to be without a home, but hopefully you can get back on your feet fast. Yeah, I think we will. And we're resilient and we have a, a happy family. So we'll be fine. We just need a little bit of time to process and, and heal from it. Well, Heather, thanks so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. And best of luck. We're all thinking about you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We're back in Kelowna tonight, West Kelowna, talking about uh, the damage done there by wildfires. The good news today, we've learned from the fire chief in West Kelowna, Jason Brolin, that it doesn't appear there were any uh, fatalities, which is, of course, great news. The number of uh, structures destroyed in West Kelowna itself seems to be around 70, which is a lot. We heard from Heather McKay in the last uh, 15 minutes about uh, what it's like to lose your home. But along with the stories of homes lost, it's important to mention the many that were saved by firefighters and all their hard work in and around uh, BC Southern Interior over the past few days. West Kelowna Fire Chief uh, Jason Brolin spoke to me last night about the strength of the community's support. I characterized this morning at Shift Change as a fire truck parade, and I said it with, you know, just as a little bit of humor because that's what it was this morning. Well, tonight uh, at Shift Change, the streets lined with people 
who are screaming at the firefighters as they come and go um, for their shift change. And it's, it's really a pretty powerful thing that's unfolded right in front of me here. Well, my next guest is one of those expressing her gratitude tonight. She's hoping to track down one firefighter in particular to thank him in person. And Marnie Endersby joins me now to explain why. Thank you so much. Thank you. I feel so honored to be uh, sharing our story. Absolutely. What a great story. You were watching your home like so many have at a distance, I gather, and just hoping beyond hope that nothing would happen to it. Yes, positives and negatives to having a camera system, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. What did you see? What did you see that, that, that has led you here? Yeah, so um, my husband and I were watching the fires uh, at the base of Knox Mountain that Thursday night when things got really bad. And we had a couple of fire trucks at our house and, and a crew of, I don't know, maybe approximately five firefighters. And then about an hour later... Um, we noticed the fire trucks had left and uh, <clears throat> we got panicky and uh, checked the cameras again. And then all we saw was this one lone firefighter with our garden hose trying to fight the rest of the fire. And the flames were still burning kind of past the height of our house. And I had never had a panic attack in my life. And I, and I started to, but um, yeah, we just were, were just standing in amazement at the fact the, the heroism and and bravery of this one firefighter in particular, although we're grateful for everyone for sure. Of and, course. Uh, what was the end result? Yeah. What was the what was the end result of that one firefighter staying behind and using your garden hose? I mean, wow. <laughs> it just gave us peace and just gratefulness and thankfulness. Um, yeah, I I can't even really describe it in words. We're yeah. just so grateful what? and thankful. Your home's okay? Yes, thank goodness. Um, when we went to bed at 4 a.m., there was still some small spot fires that hadn't been put out yet. And uh, and so we weren't fully sure, but we just thought, okay, we got to get some rest. Um, and when we woke up at 8 a.m., we weren't sure if we'd still have a home or not because the winds and uh, the fires growing so fast and everything. And thank, thank goodness we did still have a home. And all of our memories, especially for our kids' sake, are still standing <laughs> right and I guess, I guess you really want to what what attracted me I mean I saw your story elsewhere and I thought wow what a great story you're really hoping I know it's tough but you're really hoping to find this one firefighter just to say thanks right yes we would love to it would be such a beautiful end to our story and I really love the photo I was able to capture and screenshot from our camera and it would just be cool because I want to frame that photo and it'd be cool to thank him in person and maybe even just have him sign it and I know my neighbors are all very grateful as well. Right. I mean, it's it's been, sometimes we talk about what's been lost, right? I mean, we often do in the media, we talk about what's been lost, but it's so important, I think, to talk about what was saved here too. Totally. And it just shows their their passion for what they do. What what about what about for you? I mean, your house is there, but I know there's a lot of rebuilding to do. Some of your neighbors have lost, maybe not your immediate neighbors, but others have lost their homes too. I guess there's going to be a lot of a lot of rebuilding to do and a lot of sort of uh, putting things back back right now in West Kelowna. Yeah, our heart goes out to everyone that lost their homes, and it's really been beautiful to see how the whole community is coming together to help one another during this time. I've seen multiple posts on uh, various Facebook groups offering people places to stay and meals and just so much generosity, finances, and, and uh, 
yeah, we're even willing to help however we can. And uh, in the in the dirt, there's always beauty that comes out of it. So, yeah, that's right. been really great to see. Well, Marty, I, I imagine whoever took up that garden hose is probably out working again tonight. But if they weren't, if they were sitting at home listening to this, what would you tell them? Um, words can't express how grateful that we are for you. And yeah, if you're willing, we would just love to meet you and be able to thank you in person and be able to bless you somehow and just keep doing what you're doing. Because even if you think it's not making a difference, it's making a huge difference in people's lives. Yeah, I can imagine when you're fighting those fires, you don't often think that someone's sitting there maybe watching from afar, hoping hoping their home will be saved, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, Marnie, um, I, I really do hope that when this when the smoke clears and all this is done, that you get a chance to uh, to sit down and thank thank that firefighter, whoever they may be, for just taking that extra time to protect your home. Thank you. Uh, let's get back to talking a bit about insurance and wildfires, because a lot of people have been evacuated, tens of thousands, of course, um, both in BC and in the Northwest Territories, particularly these days. Uh, and of course, people have lost. People have had, we've heard from, we heard from Heather McKay in the last half hour, who's uh, lost her home in, uh, in uh, West Kelowna and just, you know, what they can hope for from their coverage. Now, today, the federal government says it's in talks with the Northwest Territorial Government and with, and with provinces that have taken in evacuees, but how to bring residents back uh, if the wildfire situation allows for it. Here's uh, the Minister of Northern Affairs, Dan Vandal. It's still a, a dangerous situation, uh, but uh, we're looking at uh, bringing people back, and there's a multitude of departments involved in that, and uh, that's uh, hopefully the next step. Right. Of course, you know, um, people who left very quickly with just what they could carry or what they could pack into their cars, there's expenses involved uh, to get away. There's expenses involved when they get to where they're going for the time being. For a lot of people, I know others are staying with family. And then, there, of course, there's the damages that have been done. Places like Enterprise in the Northwest Territories, West Kelowna, we've just been talking about in BC, and a whole lot of people are going to be impacted by these emergencies. So, of course, they'll be checking their policies to find out what is covered, what isn't, according to the Insurance Board of Canada. All standard homeowner and tenant insurance policies cover damage caused by wildfires and also provide coverage to help with the cost of those evacuations. But we thought we'd get some more details. So joining me now is Craig Stewart. He's Vice President of Climate Change and Federal Issues at the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Craig, thanks. Thanks. Tell me a bit about, uh, I guess a lot of people will be uh, scanning their policies these days, specifically those who've been evacuated from their homes. There are many and those who have suffered damage to their homes. Uh, What exactly is covered generally? Wildfires are covered in every insurance policy. So if you have home insurance, you're covered. And in addition to coverage for anything uh, that you may have lost, you will also have coverage Uh, for additional living expenses for a period of time while you're evacuated. So if you can't return to your home right away, things like hotel accommodation, food, your your insurer, your insurance policy will cover uh, that as well for a number of days. It's really important, though, uh, reach out to your insurer so that you understand your policy and you understand your coverage as soon as you're safe. What kind of limits exist on on these things? Because I know generally they're not they're not infinite, right? Typically, homes are, it's either the rebuilding cost or the actual replacement value of the home uh, is what is covered. In standard policies, you're, you're not facing a specific dollar uh, limit so much as 
the, the insurance is there to restore you to the way you were before. Some insurers will offer a lump sum payout at some point if uh, of the claim process, and it's up to you about whether that's a good idea for you or not. But typically, you're you're insured for the full value of your home. Right. And this is for people, understandably, who perhaps have lost their homes. What about for people who have been evacuated? Because I wasn't entirely clear on how that works. So for people who are evacuated, they're typically covered uh, up to a specific dollar limit for additional living expenses. So it'll be specified in the policy that does vary from company to company. So it's important to get a sense of both how many days you're covered for and and any uh, conditions of what the coverage may be. I know a lot of people probably packed up their bags and left in a big hurry, specifically thinking about a place like Yellowknife or, or Kelowna these days. For those who are facing sort of a short-term uh, cash crunch, w- what should they be doing? Should they be trying to find out, try to get to the bottom, or at least file, a, trying to get a hold of someone to handle their insurance as fast as they can? Many insurers will do direct deposit directly to your uh, to your account to make sure you're not out of pocket. So again, it's really important to reach out to your insurer whether it's your direct insurer or your broker, uh, get in contact with them and let them know your situation as soon as possible. And I, I presume there are oftentimes there are insurers on the ground, or at least people on the ground in those areas who can help out pretty quickly. Now, this might be a little more complicated for Northwest Territories folks who've gone pretty far from home, but is, is that being offered as well and where, where they're settled at this point? Some insurers will actually be available at the evacuation centers themselves. That's typical practice across the country when you have these sorts of events. Or they will have some sort of specific virtual line set up so so that it's easy to contact them. Look for them at the evacuation centers. But if, if your particular insurer isn't there, then reach out on the line, the number that your insurer has given you. Right. One of the things that's come up, of course, and this is not just for those who find themselves uh, in a situation right now, is that you should be making detailed lists of what's, I know, I know this might be hindsight is twenty twenty for some, but you should have a good idea of what's in your home as well, right? I mean, that helps. And you should be detailing your expenses as well while you're out. So any documentation that you can provide will facilitate the process. If you have photos, even some of us will have taken photos of all the contents, all the rooms in our homes. But even if you haven't, if you've got uh, photos, incidental photos from last Christmas, photos that you've taken through from family gatherings, which show the content of your home, uh, if you can kind of peruse those and, and you know, that will help jog your memory, provides documentation. And then you can create that list out of that. That's very helpful to make sure that you're fully capturing all the contents of your home that may have been affected by a wildfire. Yeah, I was told by someone once that it just like replacing the batteries in your in your smoke or checking the batteries in your smoke detector, it should be something maybe you do once once or twice a year, right? When you change your clocks. It's a great idea. And 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 for those that even aren't affected by this event, as an, as a reminder, yeah, just once or twice a year, go through, take a photo of each of the rooms in your house. Take a photo of the, uh, you know, the contents of your garage. Uh, if you've got shelves and storage in there, just make sure you've got full documentation because, you know, hopefully you'll never need it, but it's important to have. It's been such a such a busy year wildfire-wise. I mean, between Alberta and then Nova Scotia, now what we're seeing in the Northwest Territories and BC, I mean, this must have some impact on insurers' ability to handle all these claims. One presumes there's a lot more than usual. So insurers are, you know, are built for these sorts of events. Although there may be thousands of, of claims resulting from these wildfires, you know, they're equipped to handle them. In some cases, there can be delays in getting appraisers uh, out to the properties. They may need to figure out workarounds. But for the 
you know, for the most part, the industry was founded on wildfire 400 years ago, and we do wildfire pretty well. And we've become better and better at it, unfortunately, given all the events uh, in recent years dating back to the Fort Mac fire. So you should expect that your claim will be handled pretty quickly. Craig, I, th- I think a lot of people look at what's happened this summer and, and look at what happened in California recently. That, that made a lot of news and think, OK, well, the, you know, how bad a year has it been? And will this change the long term uh, approach, long term risk assessment that insurance companies and reinsurers take when they look at something like fire insurance in certain parts of the country? You know, there's been a lot of attention uh, on uh, the California situation and the fact that uh, a handful of companies have stopped writing new business there. We want to reassure Canadians that we're not seeing that sort of movement here in Canada at this point. Insurance is widely available for fires uh, across the country. We're not anticipating that there are these going to be California-type problems. That said, we are already at that place with flood. Uh, You know, there's about 10% of properties across the country, one and a half million homes that that simply can't get flood insurance. And there are some some other perils that, that aren't covered in this country, such as you know, land subsistence, tsunami is not uh, not covered. We do already have gaps because of a uh, high level of risk in certain parts of the country. We are working with governments and advising governments that it's time to really take climate adaptation seriously. You know, as insurers, we need to start seeing that governments are focused on limiting risk, investing in, certainly not putting more people in harm's way uh, as we address the housing crisis. But at the same time, trying to invest in risk mitigation. So whether it's flood defenses, better trained firefighters, making sure that we've got fire stations, fire hydrants in communities that are at high risk. These are all very important decisions that will factor in to insurers pricing of premiums and to ensuring availability of insurance in the years to come. Well, Craig Stewart, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. We've been talking a lot about uh, the wildfires tonight, both Northwest Territories and in the Southern Interior, BC. We've talked a lot about the evacuations, all those many thousands of people who've had to leave their homes. Um, but what we haven't talked about yet is all those who have pitched in to help out. If you look both at what's happened in Alberta with all those people uh, you know, reaching out to evacuees from the Northwest Territories, to offer them support, to offer them help. And it's the same story. Of course, in Northwest Territories, 70% of the population, it's estimated, is not at home tonight. And it's the same story as well in the Southern Interior of BC and around Kelowna, obviously, where a whole bunch of different organizations have stepped up to try to meet the needs of those who suddenly find themselves, uh, temporarily, we hope, without a roof over their heads. For everything from, you know, helping with kids, from helping with pets, and so on, and helping with basic sustenance. Uh, One of those groups, one of those volunteers joins me now. Navjit Kunkun is with Kalsa Aid Canada. Uh, Navjit, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, tell me a bit about what kind of work. I mean, how did you how did you set up, and what kind of work are you doing there tonight? Yeah, so Kalsa Aid was uh, founded in 1999 in the UK by Ravi Singh. Um, now there's chapters around the world, including throughout Canada. Um, we are a humanitarian relief uh, organization providing assistance in areas impacted by natural disasters, such as the Okanagan. Um, so we are doing various uh, things here as they're coming up. Um, which I can give you some of the exa- those examples, like we have set up a station at the West Kelowna City Hall where we're providing items of necessity um, there on a daily basis. Right. I understand you're helping the firefighters as well, I believe I was reading that somewhere. 
We are, yes. So we were working alongside the Salvation Army to have our volunteers drop off hot meals uh, directly to the firefighters. Um, And also today we just did a large drop off of um, care packages for the firefighters as well. Right. What's in those packages? I, I, I mean, obviously people need a bit of everything right now, but those firefighters have been going for days. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, some, some, something, some sustenance is probably welcome. Exactly. So we want to ensure they have things that will keep them going, fighting strong uh, during this time. So high protein snacks, uh, electrolytes, things that sometimes go unnoticed, things like um, drops for their eyes, because fighting fires and that smoke is just uh, would be very difficult on anyone's body. Right. And a bit about what you've been giving to the evacuees as well, because I understand you've been giving them basically the sorts of necessities that they may be without right now. Yeah, so things from water, uh, snacks. We've been uh, delivering personal hygiene items that people may not have access to during this time. Uh, also for children that are in a, a, you know, a distressed state, we have toys for them to just to give a little more comfort uh, to these children. Right. And of course, I, I guess you've been relying a little bit on your chapter in Vancouver as well to support the chapter in Kelowna. Is that right? Definitely. We want to ensure that um, while we are helping everyone here, we're not depleting resources. So we do have access to our teams in the lower mainland that on a daily basis now we are getting shipments of anything that's being required. Right. I, I don't know if you actually know this, but have you been doing similar work uh, in, in for those who've left the Northwest Territories as well? Uh, I don't have that information on hand at this time, but Calta sure. Aid uh, does set up, um, like I said, in areas of crisis um, throughout the world. Um, and we do have several chapters throughout uh, Canada as well. Right. What's the reaction been like? I mean, it, it, obviously, you are also you're delivering this aid, but you're also coming face to face with people who are in a tough situation, right? I think everyone is um, just so happy seeing how strong this community is and that everyone is coming together. Uh, The motto for CASA Aid is to recognize the human race as one. And I think there's a lot of examples right now in the Okanagan of that. Right. Anything specific that you've seen over the last couple of days that really stands out to you? Everyone's been very thankful. So even today with the firefighters, when we dropped off, um, you know, items of necessity, they were very uh, thankful. And I think it's very important for all of us to take the time to thank the frontline workers as well. Um, so I think the least any, everyone can do at this time is to say a big thank you to those firefighters. Right. I, how long do you think you're going to stay? Do you stay for a set period of time or do you sort of go in and stay until you're no longer needed? We, we are going to assess um, their needs um, on a weekly basis. Um, so we'll see how the situation is. But uh, we do have a, a team here in Kelowna. Right, of course. Um, well, Navid, uh, Navjeet, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Keep up the good work. I know there's a lot of you out there. You must have seen a lot of other, uh, you're saying to you're working with the Salvation Army. So you must be, you see a lot of different organizations out there doing something similar to CalSA Aid as well. Definitely. There's a lot of people here willing to help. Um, and you may have seen articles that sometimes the help is a little overwhelming with food drop off, drop off and things. So, yeah, there's no shortage of, of people looking to, to help those in need. Yeah, I guess that's some good advice because you'll have seen this now firsthand. Uh, you know, all help is appreciated, but not all necessarily all help is needed uh, all the time, right? It's very important, I think, to reach out if you are looking to help uh, certain organizations just to see what they really require because we want to ensure we're not wasting any of these resources. 
Right. Well, uh, Navjeet, thank you so much for taking time tonight to uh, explain your work. I know there's a lot of different groups out there, and I'm glad we were able to, uh, to profile the volunteers doing all the hard work, lots of hard work uh, on the front lines these days. Thank you so much for having us tonight. Um, we'll continue on to tonight with a little more on the wildfire situation, but a broader picture of it all, because if it's not the images of streams of cars leaving Yellowknife last week or people lining up to get on those flights out of the capital after the Northwest Territories' capital was uh, ordered evacuated because of wildfires uh, raging nearby or in places such as B.C., and those absolutely apocalyptic scenes of wildfires burning uh, in West Kelowna last, late last week. Uh, there's been Quebec, Nova Scotia this year, of course, Alberta, obviously, earlier this year. And the wildfire smoke that has caused uh, so much, uh, well, has been descended on a whole lot of places and caused uh, so much trepidation in places, even like New York City and Toronto, when it hits the big cities in, you know, on both sides of the border, you know that it's going to be a big news story. Um, so a lot of us have sort of felt impacted by wildfires this year. In fact, according to new research from Angus Reid, uh, Canadians, they polled up to 70% say this fire, 70% really say this fire season has been terrible or worse than average in their province. 53% said they've stayed inside more this summer than they'd like to. The highest was in Alberta at 65%. 43% complained about the impacts of wildfire smoke, imagine. A lot of people expect worse fire conditions in the future as well, so much so that uh, not an insignificant, not a huge number, but on a, not an insignificant number, 13%, especially young people, uh, asked, actually said they would consider moving to a place that feels just a little bit safer. So what are Canadians' attitudes this summer as we've lived through this record wildfire year. Joining me now is Shachi Kurl. She's president of the Angus Reid Institute. Uh, welcome back. Thanks so much for your time tonight. As always, thanks for having me. Some interesting uh, numbers that you found. You went out looking to see what Canadians thought about this record wildfire season we're having and uh, put some pretty pointed questions to them. What did you come up with? Well, what we found, perhaps not surprisingly, is that there is a significant part of alarm and and, and sense of alarm in, in terms of what people are feeling I think one of the data points that really made me sit down and go, gosh, is the fact that 88% of Canadians do feel like they have been affected by wildfires in some way, whether it's been smoke or ill health or not being able to go outside or all up into all the way to evacuation. So, and interestingly, I'm speaking to you from the West Coast, from where I live in Vancouver, We've been through several summers where there is that smoky haze where evacuations are sadly not that unusual. But I think this was the first year where folks in central Canada and Toronto and Montreal and Ottawa and New York, um, south of the border, probably experienced some of that for the first time. So when you see the extent to how widespread the personal impact is, that is something that stands out for me. Right. One of the things that stood out to me, and I think this is something that's been talked about a lot, is is the majority of people you spoke to also felt like this is not going to get better. Now we know fire seasons uh, can be can vary quite significantly, but people certainly think this is uh, a sign of things to come. They do, and it's that hopelessness factor that really, you know, we've known and we've seen through our data for a while that there has been something of a sixty six thirty three split in terms of. What causes climate change? Is climate change a fact? Is it human caused? Is it too late to do anything about it? And as with many soundings on this issue, 
again, we have found that uh, the majority think that it isn't necessarily too late as long as action is taken very soon. But I pause on that one in 10 Canadians who now say it is too late to turn back the clock. It is too late to ameliorate the system to really alleviate the worst of what we're seeing in terms of human-caused climate change. I'm not used to seeing data like that. You looked into the issue of of the wildfire seasons and, uh, and, and again, the attachment to, to, to climate change. And we've talked a bit about this on the show, obviously. We've talked about, you know, it's not necessarily what causes the fires. There's certainly been a lot of talk about that. It's certainly, but it makes the fires more intense. It accelerates what's already there, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak. But, but when you looked into it, you found that, again, a, a vast, you know, a, two-thirds of Canadians more or less think that climate change is a crisis and that it needs to be uh, addressed urgently. Uh, and that sometimes, I think, is um is a number that might mightn't surprise people, but uh, it's still I mean it's high, but it's still been it's down a bit from where it was even a few years ago. It is. Look at what we have dealt with in the last several years, last five years, let's call it as 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 humans as as Canadians in our society. COVID has been the thing that really took 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, the beginning of a significant amount of our attention, a significant amount of our brain space. And then almost immediately, people in terms of what was affecting them at the household level were dealing with a pivot to increased costs, inflation, cost of living problems, increased uh, mortgage and borrowing rates that, again, have a level of immediacy that sometimes climate change, notwithstanding in the summer months, maybe doesn't pierce people in the same way. And I've noticed it in terms of the data. When you ask people, like, what's the single most important issue facing your own life today? What do you care most about? 2017, 2018, climate change was top three, sometimes top and really, really high at the top of that list. We now see it sometimes running a distant fourth or fifth. And that tells me that in the short term, households, people are focused a little bit more on how am I going to afford the basics and a little bit less focused on some of these longer term issues. But they always galvanize and come to the fore in the summer when we tend to see more extreme weather. Right. And I suppose if you're to wrap up what you found here, uh, that is what we're seeing again this year, given just how uh, bad the wildfire season has been. It's been bad. And I think it's gone from, well, you know, wildfire seasons or extreme weather, sometimes they're less extreme, sometimes they're more extreme, to people looking out the window, uh, being affected by wildfire smoke, or worse, tragically, maybe being affected by wildfire having lost their home or having had to flee their home on on fairly short notice, it does feel a little bit apocalyptic and that is emotional for Canadians. And they are, you know, the data is showing us that that they're drawing a direct line between that level of concern and climate change. Shachi Curl is president of the Angus Reid Institute. We've been talking about the wildfires, uh, and now we'll talk politics. Speaking of another sort of uh, natural disaster, <laughs> I won't put it that way. Uh, it's been a, it, it's been. <laughs> I a mean, t- that's funny. We can laugh at that. Why can't we laugh? We can laugh at that. It's been a tough year for the Liberals. You look at what's happened to them in 2023, and it feels like 
ever since the uh, the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act came to an end, and I gather the Liberals uh, sort of felt like they had had a bit of momentum out of that. Uh, twenty twenty three has been you know uh, cost of living, uh, inflation, uh, interest rates up, or at least you know interest rates, <laughs> the cost of everything up, as well as the China interference uh, issue and so forth. There's been a lot of stuff going on. What do they need to do? Do you think to try and get back into a position where they can compete in the next election? I tend to take the the 50,000 foot view on this, Ben, like they've been down before and it's looked like it's been insurmountable or not fixable before. This is a a government and we have a prime minister who uh, has a very canny ability to seem to be able to pull things back from the brink. Although I would suggest in most cases over time, he's been helped by the relative weakness of the opposition leader of the day. And uh, Pierre Polyev, as conservative leader, is now the fourth leader that he's faced off against. So you are right. We we are seeing the conservatives starting to pick up some momentum in terms of vote intention. They're putting more and more distance, the conservatives, between themselves and the governing liberals. The fatigue factor is a real thing, as it would be after almost eight years of any government, regardless of stripe. And of course, the wicked problem uh, for governments, again, regardless of stripe, because there are NDP governments provincially facing this in, in British Columbia. There are conservative governments facing it in Ontario and a federal liberal government dealing with the issue of the cost of living crisis with grocery prices skyrocketing, with people worried about how they're going to make ends meet. And against the backdrop of all of that, we've seen, I think, probably some unprecedented amount of message discipline from the conservatives as they focus only on this issue, not exclusively, but significantly on this issue, and are really exploiting what has been a perceived weakness with the liberals. So this is the only thing that the conservatives have managed to talk about that is moving the needle for the electorate, that is taking swing voters and having them maybe take a second or a third look at uh, the Conservative Party of Canada in a way that they would not have in the past. I mean, it is the most basic of political and electoral questions, right? Are you better off now than you were eight years ago? I mean, that's that's what it boils down to. It's it's a pretty simple message. But you're right. It's been done with a whole lot of discipline. Pierre Polyev has always been a very effective opposition politician. He's showing it now. The liberals, though, are obviously with this retreat are already talking affordability. How do they get back into this then? Because clearly people have kind of I don't think people have made up their minds about this. There's still a lot of road to travel before the next election, we think. But clearly the liberals need to try to find some traction. So do so the NDP, by the way, on affordability issues, because it feels like this is a conversation uh, that the conservatives have found a way to kind of dominate in the last, say, six months. So a couple of things to unpack there. I'll start with the NDP first. The NDP has increasingly, when you look at the polling data, been the home and the party of young, educated Canadian voters who see themselves more in downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver or or Montreal versus being the party that really sort of stands in not only ethical solidarity, but financial solidarity with working class Canadian voters. So you look at what happens in Britain and the Conservative Party, the the Tories, as they're called in Britain, have done a pretty effective job of going into working class communities 
in and around England and saying, we're doing a better job than labor would have, whereas labor might have been the traditional home for the left of center. We're seeing the same thing in Canada, where the conservatives are now competing for those so-called working class or red wall votes. So that's the challenge for the NDP is to actually land with the factory workers in Oshawa as much as they land with folks in uh, Spadina, so to speak, in downtown Toronto. So there is that. There's also the challenges for the Liberals in terms of being able to authentically project that they understand Canadians' financial pain. And it's challenging when your finance minister is from one of the highest income ridings in the country and when your prime minister early on in his political career was noted for wearing a Rolex watch to the Tim Hortons, But I will also say this, the vulnerability for the conservatives is that this one issue may well calm down before the writs are dropped again, in part because the Trudeau government has a significant amount of control over when they choose to go back to the polls. This inflation and the high interest rates that we're seeing as a result of it I know that the Bank of Canada and the professionals and the economists call it transitory. It doesn't minimize the hurt that people are feeling. But the idea is or the the sense is that it will not last forever and it may not last through 2025. And if that issue goes away, the conservatives are going to have to find something else over which to move the needle And I don't know that they've identified it because since 2015, this has been the only thing that's really made a difference in terms of voters feeling galvanized and paying attention to what the conservatives are saying. Well, Shachi, as always, uh, thanks so much. We'll leave it there. Thanks for having me. Uh, one of the places I, uh, one of the things I do on my phone sometimes is I play card games because I find it kind of relaxing. It allows me to kind of shut the brain off for a few minutes. And wow, there are a lot of gambling ads on card games these days. But my next guest wants to talk about the gambling ads that we see on TV. Ever since Ottawa officially lifted its ban on single game sports betting in 2021, there has been an absolute surge in gambling ads on TV during sporting events. Here's one example that's pointed out in a white paper that my next guest just uh, helped write. Uh, During the first National Hockey League playoff game between the Maple Leafs and the Panthers back in May of 2023, there were eight and a half minutes of ads for gambling. And that does not include the ads that were on the ice or flashed on the boards. Uh, He says professional leagues such as the NHL, the NBA, and so on now support betting, uh, even make formal agreements with official sports betting partners. We've seen sports stars join in as well, from Austin Matthews to Wayne Gretzky and so on. Professional sports organizations argue that betting drives fan engagement. It makes it more fun, right? You're engaged in the game if you've bet on it. If you've ever bet on a on a game, you know that. Uh, I, I've had to, I don't gamble, by the way. But there was a time a million years ago where I used to, you know, play, you know, mise au jeu or, the, or that, you know, that sports betting game where you had to bet, bet, pick the three winners and I'd pick football games, right? Or I was in hockey pools when I was young. It completely changes the way you watch games. You really care about your players getting points almost as much as you do about your team winning. Um, 
and, and they argue, of course, that it propels, that it, it encourages engagement, and that if you do it responsibly, the key word hearing here being responsibly, it means a better spectator experience. My next guest, though, again, a former Canadian Olympic, Olympic former Canadian Olympian rather, an expert on sports policy, disagrees on a whole number of levels. First, there's the issue of problem gambling and the impact of promoting it so overtly. Although in Canada, it is really too early to have a clearer picture on whether there's any correlation at all between the surge we've seen in gambling ads, the promoting of gambling and gambling addiction. We've seen it in other countries, though. And he worries that gambling ads teach younger Canadians to appreciate the betting aspect of sport more than actually the sporting event itself and the athletes taking part. Call it the spirit of the game, if you'd like. Uh, again, Bruce Kidd is one of this country's great track and field athletes. Uh, he won gold and bronze at the 1962 British Empire and Commonwealth Games in Perth, Australia, and competing competed for Canada in the 5,000 and 10,000 meter races at the 1964 Olympic Games in Tokyo. He spent his career writing and teaching about sports policy, and now he's part of a group called the Campaign to Ban Ads for Gambling. They're lobbying for the prohibition of ads for gambling in the same way that ads for tobacco and cannabis have been restricted. And he joins me now. Bruce, thank you for your time tonight. Well, thank you, Ben. This has been, a, I mean, I don't think if you've watched sports in Canada in the last while, uh, it is impossible to miss the impact that uh, that gambling and changes made to legislation have had almost instantly on the landscape in this country. What? How have you, how have you witnessed it? Because you're a long time, uh, both athlete yourself, but also someone who's followed this industry very closely for decades now. I love sports. I love to watch sports, both in person at a rink or at a ball field. But I watch a lot of television sports. I probably watch more uh, television sports than any other form of, of television broadcasting. And it's so in your face. It's just gross. Not only is it constant, uh, but um, the the message that's explicit is you can't enjoy sports unless you bet. There's no concern or a very tiny concern for the harms created uh, by sports betting and by the ads that are, are presented. There's no distancing for members of our population, particularly children and youth, who uh, the research shows uh, are groomed to bet uh, as a result of the tsunami of ads. There's there's no uh, effort to address the economic, social treatment costs of mental health that's exasperated by. And there's there's no concern about what I call the the ethical contradictions that sports betting uh, creates. The pressure on athletes. Uh, the uh, the way in which the whole meaning of sports is is distorted, poisoned. So it makes me crazy. And when a, a lifelong friend uh, of mine and I got together last winter and realized that there's nobody out there formally fighting against these ads, we decided to create an organization, and that's the campaign to ban ads for gambling. It's interesting because if you look at how it happened, uh, I mean, I remember when Bill C-218 was being passed, uh, it, it had all parties support, right? I mean, the idea was this is happening illegally, so you might as well facilitate it happening legally instead and take get that money into the public coffers. But it feels like, uh, and you've pointed this out in that white paper, it feels like very, there was very little due diligence done about what the downside of this could be. And it feels like everyone was somewhat caught off guard that we've had this 
absolute avalanche. Of I think that's that- largely true. Yeah. You know, I represented Canada on several international committees uh, that dealt with this. Uh, in in those days, there was no sports betting that were that was legal in Canada, and the Australians and the Brits would tell me these horrible stories and the policy conundrums they're in, and they and I said, "Well, that doesn't happen in Canada," and they said, "You're so naive." And it's going to happen, and you've got to be prepared for it. And of course, we weren't prepared. There was due diligence about the the fear of match match fixing mm-hmm. and uh, game manipulation. And to the extent that there was a they they canvassed the international research, they did look at policies and processes to to minimize match fixing. But although there was abundant research on the harms. Uh, coming out of the UK, Australia, the European Union, and so on. Nobody, with a few exceptions, like the Conservative MP, uh, Michael Chong, looked at um, those harms, and now uh, we're having to face them. What I mean, the answer is obvious, but but you've looked into this. I mean, it's money, right? And money is money. Uh, but is is that the sole motivation here? Have we seen because we see professional athletes, we've seen by sort of link uh, sporting organizations and so on. Everyone seems to have hopped on board this uh, without much hesitation. What what's going on? Do you think? Well, you're right that that sports organizations, broadcasters traditional uh, print newspapers are all looking for revenue these days and the advertising associated with sports betting provides a new source of, of income to the extent that the big sports organizations like the NHL and the CFL can form partnerships with sports betting they can add new forms of revenue but that doesn't account for the 180 that most of these organizations uh, took other uh, other than uh, it's a, a cultural practice that's completely out of hand, and they felt they had to jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it was, it, I mean, I understand it. If you obviously, you know, the, the industry has responded to this by saying, you know, we, we do our best to make sure that people bet, you know, there's all sorts of um, warnings and so on, much like we used to put on the side of cigarettes, right? I mean, it's gotten more and more pronounced now. But it's interesting to see, government and many many others sort of jump in jump in feet first or jump in whole hog into what has long been seen as another vice so we sort of we have a lot of warnings about selling alcohol but the government still does that in most provinces we have obviously lots of warnings about cigarettes the government still takes revenue off those but it felt strange to watch them get into gambling and and i guess it's it's a tough one it's a tough one because because it feels wrong to some extent well, we think there should be other forms of taxation to provide the services and the opportunities that we need. And we don't have to rely uh, so heavily on tax the sin as a way of generating revenue. I mean, but in the last 20 or 30 years, government taxation has become a horror. Certain uh, political parties campaign uh, endlessly uh, to reduce the size of government. And so the only way new revenue uh, can be generated, some governments think, is by taxing uh, uh, voluntary purchases, uh, such as the sports bet. Uh, What that ignores, though, is the tremendous social cost. Uh, My 
my guess is that if we looked at the economic, social, and treatment costs of the mental health harms created by by gambling, uh, sports betting, and and so on, uh, th- those tax dollars would very quickly be eaten up. We haven't done the research yet. We've only had sports betting legalized in Canada for 18 months, but uh, that research is being done. And the people in mental health will tell you that they've seen a huge spike in a request for assistance uh, in problem cases uh, as uh, a result of, of these ads uh, and the legalization. I mean, these ads are persuasive. There was on a podcast conducted by the Canadian Mental Health Association, a Saskatchewan educator who said, we started our educational programs in schools now in grade one, whereas we used to do it in grade nine, because it's clear that because any kid can turn on the television and and see betting ads, they're getting involved. And although the betting companies say, well, we have firewalls to stop kids betting, it's, it's very easy for a smart kid uh, who's media savvy and knows where uh, their parents' credit card is to establish an account and start betting. Right. Bruce Kidd is Professor Emeritus of Sports Policy at the University of Toronto, a former Canadian Olympian, of course. Uh, he's now part of an organization called the Campaign to Ban Ads for Gambling. Uh, they have a new white paper out called The Impact of Advertising for Gambling. Uh, it's, of course, not that old in this country, just 18 months since uh, the floodgates have really opened. You've targeted the advertising particularly because you think that's one area where, there, A, there's a lot of well, there's a lot of precedent, right? Other countries have looked at this as well. And of course, we have the tobacco example in this country. Why did you focus specifically on the advertising? You think that's a really important part of this? Well, we're, we're, we're not proposing that we ban sports betting or gambling. We think that there are public policy reasons, as you said uh, in the last segment, for allowing that to happen and, and not having that exist solely in a black market or offshore. But the evidence is clear that uh, the ads uh, induce way more people, children and youth, vulnerable people, to bet on sports and to do so in an uncritical way that leads to harms. The, the ads suggest in tiny, tiny type at the bottom that people should bet responsibly. Some companies say that they police against uh, children and youth betting or identified uh, addicted gamblers from betting, but we know we see no evidence that that is working. And the international evidence is that you can significantly reduce the harm, not eliminate it, but significantly reduce the harm by banning or restricting the ads. And if you look around the world, uh, in virtually every country, there are uh, there there are discussions about what to do. Four European countries have banned ads outright. Australia is considering a phased-in ban of all ads for gambling. The UK is considering a whistle-to-whistle ban that means that uh, no ads would be shown during the course of a game. And and there are other countries with, with other approaches. Yeah, because you pointed out, uh, I think you used one example in the white paper of uh, one of the playoff games between the Maple Leafs and the Panthers this past May, where there were eight and a half minutes of advertising for gambling during the game itself. And that's a lot of minutes. That's a lot of minutes between the whistles. 
And more and more of the broadcasters are adding uh, to that inducement by positively discussing the odds, uh, talking up their own bets. So there's no critical uh, distance between the sports commentary and and the ads. So that's more time uh, devoted to uh, grooming people uh, to bet. I said uh, to someone with whom I talked, a journalist with whom I talked uh, yesterday, uh, when when he w- was on Hockey Night in Canada, back when the sponsors were oil companies and banks and so on, right. did he promote those corporations in their commentary? No, but they're doing that now for the betting companies. And I think that's unethical. You mentioned earlier that you'd gotten together with a friend of yours and realized that there was really no fight against this just yet. Certainly a lot of people are talking about it. I don't think anyone uh, didn't notice the how many gambling ads there were on during the NHL playoffs this year, uh, not to just to target the NHL, but that was one area that a lot of Canadians would have paid attention. Uh, where do you begin then? Where, where do you hope to find uh, a foothold for this? Well, we're beginning in Ottawa, which we believe uh, has the power to regulate uh, ads. Uh, It did so for ads for tobacco uh, a generation ago. And so we're modeling our proposal on the ban against tobacco advertising that we already experience. We've been lobbying uh, senators and uh, MPs in the House of Commons to do something similar. And that's where most of our efforts have been devoted. There is a private member's bill now in the Senate, introduced by Marty Deacon, a longstanding Olympic leader, and supported by uh, Brent Cotter, who was a former uh, Deputy Attorney General in Saskatchewan. So they've introduced a private member's bill in the Senate, and we're hoping it will be discussed and approved in the fall. Then it will go to the House of Commons, And we've lined up support from MPs and all five political parties in Ottawa to support that bill. Um, The government would have to uh, endorse it as a government bill if it's to become law. So we've also uh, we're also pushing uh, the government uh, very hard to say there's so much public support for this. If there's all party support for this, Will you then make it a public bill? So if passed, it will become law. Um, that's going to be our fall activity. Well, Bruce Kidd, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. You know, there is indeed a Simpsons episode for everything. In this case, Homer happily ignores his kids at the zoo while playing games on his phone. Man key, diglet. Grimer. Hey, Dad. Dad, check this out. Dad, over here. Dad, a mother giraffe is giving birth. Dad, look, I'm walking on the wall around the lion pit. Dad, the baby giraffe is taking its first step. Dad, I'm walking on my hands and the lions think they're going to eat me. Hey, you kids, pipe down. Ratata. Sandshrew. Drowsy. Dad, pay attention to your children. Oh, okay. Uh-oh. Oh, that'll be my screensaver. Right. Homer Simpson. I mean, it's a comedic look of way looking at it's a comedic way of looking at what has become a very modern issue, not only with parenting, but also in all relationships, the presence of the, the, the eternal presence of the smartphone. I mean, honestly, I spent way too much time 
staring at that screen. I use it to read, research, email, watch sports, watch movies, watch YouTube, scroll through social media. You get the point, right? And I can imagine that it often feels like you're just kind of elsewhere, right? And this happens with friends. It happens with family. Of course, it happens uh, with my wife as well. Uh, and this is not a good thing, but there's something addictive about it, right? You get used to it and you need discipline to put that thing down, put the phone down. So when I saw the blurb uh, for my next guest and her latest book, it really caught my eye. Paula Kokoza is a staff writer at The Guardian in London, and she covers a wide range of really interesting stuff and has for many years. But the latest topic that she tackles in her new book is smartphone addiction, essentially. Um, but she does it in a truly novel way. Her book is called Speak to Me. It's set about a decade ago, and it features a librarian named Susan who's so fed up with her husband Kurt's smartphone use, she nicknames the thing Wendy and actually tries to destroy it a few times. In fact, she does destroy it a few times, but to absolutely no avail. He simply goes out and gets a new one. Um, this is perhaps the most poignant thing about it. She says she feels like her marriage has become, quote, a modern version of a long-distance relationship. They're living under the same roof, but they may as well be talking through screens because she only ever sees his eyelids in the top of his head. Um, and again, while it's set back when smartphones first came into our lives, it feels like very little has changed. Now, if anything, things have gotten worth, gotten worse, rather. So joining me now is Paula Kokotza, uh, author and staff writer at The Guardian. Her book is called Speak to Me, A Love Triangle with a Difference. Paula joins me from London. Thank you. Hi, thank you for having me. Paula, this is a really uh, prescient, prescient uh, topic, isn't it? Uh, and I gather you did a lot of talking to people, too, before you set off to write the book. You sort of did your research. You've written about it. There's not much written about in, in literature about the smartphone, and yet it feels like it should be the central character in many a book. Yeah, I think uh, that's true. Um, I think, in a way, literary fiction has sort of taken a little while to catch up with smartphones, perhaps... Uh, I think in the early days, people, authors regarded them with, with suspicion because, you know, they kind of changed the way you might need to plot and perhaps they make answers all too, um, too accessible. But I think now there's been, there, there are novels now that are kind of taking on the internet and smartphone and our connectedness in a more kind of head-on fashion. I think often of sort of Black Mirror, and those, that's a, sort of dystopian, but this is not, this is very, this all feels very real. Tell me a bit about what you heard when you went out to do the sort of start to speak to people to sort of put together, um, because I gather Susan is sort of a, an amalgamation of a lot of people's stories about why they're so frustrated with smartphones, period, but also their partner's use of smartphones or their kids' uses of smartphones. Yeah, so I, I set the book in 2011, um, which was kind of when a, a bit of a tipping point, I suppose, when kind of approaching 50% of adults were owning a smartphone. And I, I talked to a lot of people um, in, in the early years of writing, so perhaps 2014-ish, um, 2015. And I heard a lot of people who were unhappy about their partners or their family members' use of technology, um, smartphones especially. And the things that came up time and again, just the frustration, the scale of the frustration, so that some people I spoke to had um, broken um, a device deliberately, smashed it, someone else had thrown it, one from the window. Um, uh, uh, people felt offended. Um, that was the big kind of common feeling that I got that people 
were bruised by all the kind of, I suppose, micro-ostracisms that went on in their daily lives when a loved one would use a phone in their company um, in a way that made them feel that their their partner's attention was elsewhere, that they, they weren't really as interesting as the phone. And the big one that came up, actually, it's quite, quite a small one, I suppose, in the scheme of things. But the way that when you wake up, if you're sharing a bed with someone and if they turn first to their phone before greeting you or saying anything or acknowledging your presence in the bed at all, um, that felt very painful to a lot of people. And it seems to be quite a common one, actually, that a partner will just reach for the phone, perhaps initially to check the time, but then there'll be a notification or before you know it, they're in full scroll and um, by then it's too late. So, yeah, those are the sorts of things that came up time and again. Yeah, Susan describes it as being a modern version of a long-distance relationship, how you can actually be in a long-distance relationship under the same roof, which was a pretty pretty vivid way of describing it. <laughs> That's right. She feels that um, they, they live in the same house, but they're in effect in different historical eras because she is not so tech- technologically adroit as he is. Um, so she feels kind of left behind. Uh, um, outdated somehow and partly I guess the novel is her is, is her attempt to kind of find her her moment and her right place and 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 to update herself in some way one of the best reviews I read of it described uh, Wendy as she names her husband's smartphone as young, slim, sleek, and looks great in black leather, but it's not by no <laughs> means uh, another person. And that was a really interesting way of putting it. Um, but she, she does feel like, I mean, to, to, to borrow from the late Princess Diana, uh, Diana, Princess of Wales, she feels like there are three people in this marriage. She does. She feels that every time she looks at her husband, he's looking at yeah, Wendy, as she names the smartphone. And uh, when they sit down, when she joins him to watch TV, something they might once have done together, you know, chatted about a show, that he actually is always looking at the TV and at Wendy. So he's not in the conversation with his wife anymore. He's kind of checking what people are saying about the show on Twitter. So I, I think there's there's lots of these moments that, for me, are recognisable from daily life where intimacies we once relied on aren't really there in the same way and I guess we have to look for new moments and opportunities for intimacy but a a lot of these um perhaps the smartphone has challenged and that's definitely something that yeah my protagonist experiences she's slighted she can't even look at him anymore and see his eyes she sees only his eyelids so she feels that feature that she knows better than anything else um she knows every little bump and vein of his eyelids because yeah he's always looking down scrolling or swiping or posting or i don't know doing whatever else it is he's doing whatever it is you do down those rabbit holes right uh all by yourself she she, there's an interesting line too about how she's not um when she does in fact (laughs) take i I destroy the phone or has she destroys a few actually uh, that it's not so much that she's i mean it's not a question of being jealous of the phone itself she just wants kurt to not have it she wants him to yeah. pay attention right and it's not so much about sort of jealousy it's about it's about you know, speak to me i mean it says the title says it all right yeah uh, she does or at least she claims that's what she wants she wants that direct 
conversation, the the interchange and uh, yeah, the conversational exchange and intercourse that we have and that we used to just have all the time, you know, like even speaking on the phone. I mean, people don't really use them to, I mean, I'm using one now to talk to you, but generally people use their phones for messaging more than talking, I would say. So she she does take that stance, but I, I think as the book goes on, um, it becomes clear that she has her own distractions mm-hmm. and the, the conversation she pursues in the end is not actually with him. Please. No, she goes off to look for, I mean, perhaps maybe a simpler time, but she's also trying to work some stuff out as well. I mean, in some senses, the phone kind of stands in for the mistress, or if you want to call it that. Yeah, I think that's right. And it, it's kind of a lightning rod, I guess, for all the things that are wrong in her relationship. And, and you know, there are clearly communication issues, but there are other things there. And I guess it's it's a lightning rod for all of that. And it becomes her focus um, in a quite an obsessive way, as you say. She, she manages to see off a few of these Wendy's. But um, <laughs> I think she makes the point that like, like Hydra in the Greek myths, another one always grows back. Um, yeah. You can kill them off, but, but you can't really get rid of them. Paula, when you looked into all of this, I mean, there's even words for it now that you pointed out in an article that you wrote uh, for The Guardian called fubbing, which I'd actually never heard of, but it's like snubbing with a phone, right? P-H-U-B-B-I-N-G. Right. Yeah. Um, so this has become kind of within... You set the book in, in, in the early 2010s. I mean, here we are more than a decade later, and it feels like that relationship with our devices hasn't gotten much better. Uh, when you set out to write this book, and now that it's out there, did you come up with, I mean, there's a message in these things, right? Did you come up with with a message that you wanted to share? Is it? I mean, it's a difficult one to put back into the bottle, isn't it? It is. I mean, I I don't really want to give um, one message to people, I suppose. I think it's just generally to encourage us to look at how we are communicating and I wanted to explore um it's set in 2011 as we said and I was interested in a relationship that had predated all of that technology you know for people who grew up writing love letters um as I did or perhaps you know cold nights in the phone box um to call somebody special and worrying about how quickly your money was going um all of those kind of how the scarcity and preciousness of our communication played a part in our in our loves when we were younger and and what um that changing relationship would be like for a couple if if they'd known all of that and then this technology arrived and they both responded to it very differently because I think we don't all greet technological changes in the same way and so I was interested in what new fault lines would open up in old relationships as people adjusted differently to technology right Um, yeah go ahead no I was going to just say that that's really the kind of where I was going with it and bubbing yeah that was invented as a word in 2012 and I really didn't hear it until probably just the last couple of months I think people have been talking about it because there's been some research that's come out of uh, a university in Turkey where people I think 700 married couples were surveyed and and people who reported more fubbing in their relationship reported also less satisfaction in the relationship and I think there has been a lot more kind of research by um in scientific journals or into this into fubbing 
if you look it up, you know, there are yeah. dozens and dozens of articles from the last few years. So it's clearly something that we're interested in now. And perhaps we're more ready to think about it now because we, we recognize it more now as something that is affecting us all. Right. Perhaps the, the novelty of the phones has worn off to some extent. And now we realize that they're sort of part of our everyday existence and that we need to manage that, right? Just like anything. I mean, I'm I'm incredibly guilty of doing most of the things that you've just, just mentioned. Uh. <laughs> Unfortunately, so I, I read this with with a lot of, uh, oh, no, uh, while, uh. Going, while going through it. But it's true. It, it is. I mean, in some ways, if you if you look at Kurt's character, there's a certain addiction to it, too, isn't there? I mean, there's a certain sense of addiction to it. He can't give it up, uh, even though the one person who should matter most to him is really saying, come on, like, put the phone down. Yeah, I think so. I don't know if it would qualify medically as an addiction, but it's no. definitely compulsive behavior, isn't it? And it's, it's very reward driven. And there's been lots written about, you know, the rewards that are wired into our use of phones and likes and reposts and all the rest of it. I think that's true. They, they make it very hard to focus on other things. You know, it's like there's something more interesting always going on out the corner of your eye. So I, I, I have it too. You know, I, but I find if I'm at my desk and I throw my phone onto the bed, which is only, you know, six feet away, yeah. that is often enough. I'm too lazy to get up <laughs> and go and get distracted. Um, I will just get on with not having it. And yeah. so I think partly it's that, we, that, you know, they're always in our hands or our pockets, aren't they? We don't really physically put much space between us and them. Yeah, absolutely. Paula, uh, it's a great book. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, your cheating heart makes you think of something a little bit different, right? Those old country songs. But we're talking about smartphones. Uh, Paula Kokotza, the author and journalist, was on with us in the last half hour from London talking about her book called Speak to Me, which is really the story of a teacher whose husband, Kurt, becomes absolutely obsessed with his smartphone. It's It was written back, it's set back about 10 years ago when smartphones first uh, came to us, more or less. Um, but it is, could be written today, of course. And she just gets so incensed with his inability to pay any attention to her and to pay all of his attention, spend so much time with this phone that she gives the phone a name. She calls it Wendy. And proceeds to destroy a few of them, which he just replaces, of course. Um, you know, again, that's it's an interesting book and also a really interesting topic. Uh, one listener says, I mean, I admit it to spending way too much time, you know, way, way too much time uh, looking at my phone uh, over the years. It's part of my job to some extent. I use that as a bit of an excuse. Uh, we wanted to continue this conversation, though. First, a text. Uh, one listener says, yep, smartphones could be extremely annoying if being ignored in a restaurant or bar. Excuse yourself for the washroom. Don't return. Sit at the bar and have a drink, appetizer or whatever, but within sight of the other person. Wait to see how long it is before they even notice your absence. You can text them if you lose your patience. Um, tongue in cheek, of course, but this is kind of a real conversation. And as Paula pointed out, when she was doing research for that book, uh, there she heard a lot of people talking about this idea of being ignored. So I really wanted to to delve into this a little bit more. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's you know we want to be paid attention to in a relationship, right? We want to feel like we're important to the other person, and you know you just can't 
that's hard. It's a hard thing to feel if the other person, if you can see only the top of their head while they're buried in their phone yet again. But this is a problem, of course, about communication that's existed in marriages and relationships in general for a very long time. But again, we wanted to talk a bit more about this and who better than relationship expert uh, Alison Jones. Alison, thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you, Ben. It's great to be um, on the show. Tell me a bit about this issue because I hadn't thought about it a lot, and yet if I if I look at just how people use their phones, this must be. I mean, it stands in for many other past issues, but it feels like the modern incarnation of a real problem that exists in some relationships, which is, you know, pay attention to me. Yes, and we all want that. We all want to be paid attention to. We want to be significant to the person that we're close to. And so when our partner is giving us signals that um, they're not interested in us or that maybe they're even annoyed if we're interrupting them while they're on the phone, because that actually is quite common, um, that could be very disheartening in a relationship. I mean, the reality is that the more dependent we are on our phones, the more engaged in that relationship with our phone, probably the less satisfaction we are experiencing in our relationship. Yeah, that, and, and I guess that's what the other partner might be picking up on as well. Do you, I mean, not, not to get into the details, but do you hear about this? Is this something that comes up now fairly often? This is, this is pretty much standard now, right? It's, wow. It's, yeah. It's not just wor- worrying about other people now, even though the phone can be um, channels certainly for that, but it's, it's worrying that I'm not holding my partner's attention. I can't get their attention. And it is, um, it is at a core of a lot of communication and relationship issues. Right. In the, with the author we were just speaking to, she went out and did some research on this. She actually writes it in the book as well, that one of the most um, offensive or the, one of the ones that really disturbs people the most is if a couple shares a bed and one of them reaches for their phone first thing. They don't acknowledge the other person. They, re, they acknowledge the phone first. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I guess there's a lot, of, a lot of different examples we can point to where people are going to feel like they're being left out. Well, and that's, and that's a really good point in the sense that if people are sending signals that their primary relationship is with their phone, whoever they're in relationship with is going to feel alone, going to feel lonely. So, you know, we have this reality. Smartphones are a part of our life, and they're not all bad. There are things we can do in a conscious way to even enhance our relationships uh, through smartphones if we do it consciously. But that's the thing is we have to discipline ourselves and we have to have conversations about this and how we're going to handle it. Right. When, when this is brought up in this sort of situation, I suspect that unlike some other form, say infidelity, for instance, I suspect that, that most people are pretty willing to admit that they have this issue. At least I'm someone who uses my phone way too much and I can readily admit that I have this problem. And and that's true, and that's a good point. You know, if we all are honest with ourselves, we're probably all on our phones too much. And, you know, oddly, as humans, we are denying ourselves the thing we want the most, which is true, authentic connection with somebody else when we have it right there in, in front of us, but we're distracted by this phone. So it's this weird thing we do as humans. We're all aware of it. We've known for a long time that there's a lot of... Um, challenges when it comes to technology and our relationship with it. But like I said, it is a reality. It is here. 
but having conversations like this, like the show that you're doing tonight, bringing people's awareness to this so that we can be more conscious, make choices, and regulate ourselves. So it's not that we're going to all throw out our cell phones. This is part of reality. I need my cell phone, my calendar's on it, you know, all sorts of things are on it that I need. My phone book, everything. But we have to start to limit it and limit how much it's going to be at the center of our life. Right. Uh, and you point out something interesting. I guess it does become that, um, I mean, it's it's odd to think that you can be under the same roof as somebody else. And, and in the book, I, not to bring up the book too often, but she describes it as being in a long distance relationship under the same mm-hmm. roof because she no longer has that connection to her partner. It's like he's somewhere else. Yeah. And the thing is, any relationship, you know, and one that's going to last requires work, right? And if we're just distracting ourselves from the things we need to work on, then the relationship is going to suffer. And there can be a lot of people that are feeling lonely in their relationships. Now, this is where we have to develop some of our other skills. The way I look at it with a smartphone, right, it's kind of like, and I I don't mean to sound too trite, but it's kind of like junk food, right? Right. Like it tastes good, (laughs) you know, you can get pulled into it quickly. It gives you a hit fast, but it doesn't have a whole lot of protein in it, right? You know, so the thing we have to do is look at where do we get the protein, right? So if we have a little junk food on the side, it's probably not the end of the world. But if our main diet is junk food, that's not going to be good for anybody. Right. I I suppose the the big question then is... I, I, and I guess this boils down to a communication issue as well, right? I mean, it's, I mean, this is, there's a lot of things that in a very strange way, the smartphone sort of stands in for, for things that have probably existed in relationships for a very long time. Like, uh, you know, do you pay enough attention? Uh, are you, are you considerate? Um, because in some ways, I mean, this is not even all about marriage, is it? I mean, or, or, or mm-hmm. romantic relationships, even friendships, uh, relationships, relationships with your kids can be, you know, technology can get in the way. Absolutely. It it impacts all relationships that are, you know, important to you and even some of the ones that aren't as important, but it does impact all of them. But the thing again, like I said, there's ways we can consciously try to use that. There is a nice comfort and security in knowing that, you know, hey, I if something comes up and I need some support from my partner, I can reach out to them quickly. Or I'm driving home from work, and I know if I get in trouble, I can reach somebody. There is a comfort and security that comes in that. So what we want to do is utilize those best parts, but we have to wean ourselves sometimes off of the parts that we know aren't good for us. And, you know, if we're all honest with ourselves, if you've had that night where you're just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through, if you pay attention to how you feel after that, you don't feel good. No, no, we want to look at what we actually feel good with. We feel good when we've connected with somebody, when we've talked, when we felt heard and understood. So we've got to allow ourselves more of the good feelings. Yeah. I mean, I felt good when I found your name this morning and, and thought, she'll be great. And she's in Vancouver and she's in the right time zone. It'll be perfect. Uh, so here, here we are. Um, so what are, what are some of the ways, I mean, when people bring this up to you, is the, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of describe it as like a, you know, a step-by-step program, but what do you suggest that the person who seems to be really uh, preoccupied with, with the phone, what do you suggest that they do? Well, I suggest, first of all, that they, you know, Nobody wants to be told what to do, right? We have to kind of arrive at change in our own way and our own self, too. But I really encourage people, especially if they they are the one that's identified as maybe using it too much or it's becoming the problem, to really examine and start to pay attention to their patterns. So get conscious. 
That's the first thing. Get conscious. Track it however you need to. Even make notes of it. See what your use is actually like. Pay attention to how long you're actually on the phone. Then once you get some of that information, you know, it's also talking with your partner about, okay, how can we protect some time for us? What are the things we're going to do? Okay, you know, when we're having dinner, we're going to take our phones and leave them in the other room and we're going to actually have a conversation, right? So it's putting that structure in place that protects the time and where we can actually look at each other, right? Like there is something about humans, we like to look at each other and we're denying ourselves that. So you give yourself time when you're actually having a conversation eye to eye, face to face, uh, have some nice music in the background and enjoy each other's company. I wonder if it's different, and I don't know if you'll know, but I wonder if it's different for generations that have grown up, for instance, you know, younger generations who've grown up with smartphones. It's sort of Mm -hmm. part of their routine forever, as opposed to someone my age, for instance, I was born in 1970, um, who who grew up without them, and then they came along. And your relationship with them is a little, I mean, you remember a time when they weren't around, right? So you, you have a vivid memory of a time when people didn't pick up their phones in the middle of a conversation while you were talking to them at a table, for instance. Absolutely. And, and that is something we have to take in consideration. There, there is no doubt. I mean, all the research, it, you know, we're almost drowning in the research that tells us, you know, that children are growing up with smartphones. You know, it's kind of changing the way their brain works, right? And as mm-hmm. parents, if we're denying that, you know, we truly are in denial. But we have to, like, it's not like we're not going to put, you know, we can't just rage against the machine we have to do something about it. We have to put structures in place where we say, okay, I'm going to teach my child then how to be responsible about this, how to have empathy in other ways too. Because one of the links is the more you're on your smartphone, you kind of have tend to have a little bit. It does hamper your empathy for other people. So rather than just say that's the problem, look for other ways to encourage that, in particular with our young people who are inundated with technology. Right. And I see, I gather, of course, if they see you on your phone all the time, then they're going to think that's exactly what they're supposed to be doing as well. A hundred percent right. And that's natural. You know, children are looking to their parents as their models, right? And so we do have to stay aware of what we're modeling. So maybe in your family, whatever family, right, you guys have conversations about it. That's the thing is you can deal with a lot of difficult and challenging things if you learn how to communicate with the people around you. And you can say, this is why we're, you know, taking this time and we're having Sunday dinner and there's no phone at the table because you're interesting and I want to know about your day and how you're doing. And in the end, if people feel that you're truly interested to them, in them, there, there's nothing that feels better than that person attending to you and really wanting to know who you are. We all know that feels really good. Yeah, the author referred to them as micro-ostracisms, and I thought that was a great way of putting it. These sort of, you know, when someone, you're talking to them and they sort of casually start to glance over at their phone, yeah. she referred to those as kind of bruising micro-ostracisms. Uh, any is. parting advice? Yeah, go, Allison, any parting yeah. advice for listeners on this one? This is a tough one. I find this a tough one. 
Yeah, and it's, but I mean, I think it's an ongoing conversation. And I mean, you know, we don't want to be doom and gloom about it because it's the reality we live in. But the, the good thing is we can raise our consciousness about this and we can put structures in place and we can have conversations. At the core of any relationship is going to be communication. So we recognize we live in a society that has a lot of distractions. So we have to work a little harder and a little more conscious on our communication with each other and make sure that we are making time and letting each other know that we're important because that is what's best for our mental health. That is what's going to bring us the most joy and happiness and satisfaction in our lives is our connection with each other, not the phone, with each other. Not those likes you're going to get on that clever tweet you just posted. Uh, Alison, thank you so much for your time and your insight on this tonight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to, um, to be able to have a, a conversation about this. Thank you so much for inviting me to do so.